0: This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Read by Harriet Rogers and produced by Lindsay Thorson. Chapter 7. Clothing When the houses have become the common heritage of the citizens, and when each man has his daily supply of food, another forward step will have to be taken. The question of clothing will of course demand consideration next, and again the only possible solution will be to take possession, in the name of the people, of all the shops and warehouses where clothing is sold or stored, and to throw open the doors to all so that each can take what he needs. The communalization of clothing, the right of each to take what he needs from the communal stores or to have it made for him at the tailors and outfitters, is a necessary corollary of the communalization of houses and food. Obviously, we shall not need for that to despoil all citizens of their coats, to put all the garments in a heap and draw lots for them, as our critics, with equal wit and ingenuity, suggest. Let him who has a coat keep it still, nay, if he have ten coats, it is highly improbable that any one will want to deprive him of them. For most folk would prefer a new coat to one that has already graced the shoulders of some fat bourgeois. And there will be enough new garments in spare without having recourse to second-hand wardrobes. If we were to take an inventory of all the clothes and stuff for clothing accumulated in the shops and stores of the large towns, we should find probably that in Paris, Lyon, Bordeaux, and Marseille, there was enough to enable the commune to offer garments to all the citizens of both sexes. And if all were not suited at once, the communal outfitters would soon make good these shortcomings. We know how rapidly our great tailoring and dressmaking establishments work nowadays, provided as they are with machinery specially adapted for production on a large scale. But everyone will want a sable-lined coat or a velvet gown, exclaim our adversaries. Frankly, we do not believe it. Every woman does not dote on velvet, nor does every man dream of sable linings. Even now, if we were to ask each woman to choose her gown, we should find some to prefer a simple practical garment to all the fantastic trimmings the fashionable world affects. Taste change with the times, and the fashion in vogue at the time of the revolution will certainly make for simplicity. Societies, like individuals, have their hours of cowardice, but also their heroic moments. And though the society of today cuts a very poor figure sunk in the pursuit of narrow personal interests and second-rate ideas, it wears a different air when great crises come. It has its moments of greatness and enthusiasm. Men of a generous nature will gain the power which today is in the hand of jobbers. Self-devotion will spring up, and noble deeds beget their like. Even the egotists will be ashamed of hanging back and will be drawn in spite of themselves to admire, if not to imitate, the generous and brave. The Great Revolution of 1793 abounds in examples of this kind, and it is ever during such times of spiritual revival, as nature to societies as to individuals, that the springtide of enthusiasm sweeps humanity onwards. We do not wish to exaggerate the part played by such noble passions, nor is it upon them that we would found our ideal society but we are not asking too much if we expect their aid in tiding over the first and most difficult moments. We cannot hope that our daily life will be continuously inspired by such exalted enthusiasms, but we may expect their aid at the first, and that is all we need. It is just to wash the earth clean, to sweep away the shards and refuse, accumulated by centuries of slavery and oppression, that the new anarchist society will have need of this wave of brotherly love. Later on, it can exist without appealing to the spirit of self-sacrifice, because it will have eliminated oppression, and thus created a new world instinct with all the feelings of solidarity. Besides, should the character of the revolution be such as we have sketched here, the free initiative of individuals would find an extensive field of action in thwarting the efforts of the egotists. Groups would spring up in every street and quarter to undertake the charge of the clothing they would make inventories of all that the city possessed and would find out approximately what were the resources at their disposal. It is more than likely that in the matter of clothing the citizens would adopt the same principle as in the matter of provisions. That is to say, they would offer freely from the common store everything which was to be found in abundance and dole out whatever was limited in quantity. Not being able to offer to each man a sable-lined coat and to every woman a velvet gown, society would probably distinguish between the superfluous and the necessary, and provisionally at least, class sable and velvet among the superfluities of life, ready to let time prove whether what is a luxury today may not become common to all tomorrow. While the necessary clothing would be guaranteed to each inhabitant of the anarchist city, it would be left to private activity to provide for the sick and feeble those things, provisionally considered as luxuries, and to procure for the less robust such special articles, as would not enter into the daily consumption of ordinary citizens. But, it may be urged, this gray uniformity means the end of everything beautiful in life and art. Certainly not, we reply, and we still base our opinion on what already exists. We propose to show presently how an anarchist society could satisfy the most artistic tastes of its citizens without allowing them to amass the fortunes of millionaires.